Amen. Andrew Claven said to his son in frustration, I don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. I understand the words, obviously, but I can never see the sense of it clearly. And even when I do, I'm not sure I believe in any of it or agree with it. Clavin is, of course, referring to that soaring but seemingly impossible to keep body of teaching of Jesus, which includes the command to love your enemy. Still addressing his son, Clavin goes on in his bewilderment. Don't resist an evil person. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. We're so used to believing these things, but would you actually do any of them in real life? Should you do them? If an evil person attacked you, would I stand by with some prissy smile on my face, loving him and not resisting him? And if he attacked mom, I think I'd kill him. Andrew Claven is an award-winning writer of crime and suspense novels. He's brilliant, and he is as unlikely a convert to Christianity as you'll find. Raised in Great Neck, New York, just outside the city, and raised as a secular Jew, he speaks of his life up into his 40s as marked by someone who believed in the fullest freedom of thought, who had no time for magical thinking, and hated what he saw as Christianity's forced optimism. Hope in the face of death, give me a break. So no one was more surprised than he was when at age 49, he found himself kneeling at the front of a church in Manhattan being baptized. In his own honest, if not edgy voice, he marvels, did I seriously believe that a carpenter had risen from the dead on Easter? I've never even seen one go to work on Sunday. (laughs) Clavin writes of his conversion in his memoir, The Great Good Thing. A secular Jew comes to faith in Christ. But it is this post-conversion conversation he's having with his son, this conversation where Clavin's trying to figure out how to understand and live out Jesus' teaching. It's this conversation he's having that draws us into our Easter message this Sunday. I said to my son, Clavin again, the thing is, I have this intense feeling that it all makes sense, all of Jesus' teaching. It's like a beautiful picture, but it's blurry to me. I feel if I could just turn the lens a little bit this way or that, it would all suddenly come into focus, but I can't seem to do it. My son thought about it for a while, and he said, maybe the problem is that you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man. I recognized this on the instant as the single smartest thing anyone had ever said to me. And this is the single idea I want to consider with you this Easter. The essence of Christianity is not learning a new life philosophy, but it's getting to know a person It's not mastering a teaching, it's being mastered by a man. What might it mean for us 
that what came out of the empty tomb on Easter was not a new set of 10 more commandments. It wasn't a new philosophy to replace Aristotle and Plato. It wasn't the secret to the genetic code so we can understand ourselves better. It wasn't a a body of maxims that can help you have your best life now. What walked out of the tomb was a man. What does that mean for us? We'll consider this by turning to a letter that was written to other Jews who had converted to Christianity, just like Andrew Clavin. Only their conversion was in the first century. This is in the book of Hebrews. And we'll look at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. You may already have it open in front of you. Now the first two verses, right out of the gate, in the first two verses, the writer makes this very move. He shifts from words written on a page, from following teaching and law to a person. See if you can pick this up. Verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see the move? The writer is saying that God's been speaking for some time. Through Moses, he spoke and he gave us the Ten Commandments and the law. Then he spoke, he went on speaking through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Amos and Micah. And he continued to reveal what he's like and what he expects us to be like. But now, the writer says, in these last days, right now, God has spoken in a new way, a different way, by his Son. Now, this son is not just a really good teacher in a long line of teachers, like a a new Moses, just a little bit smarter than Moses, a little bit of a better bridle on his temper. The passage says in verse 3 of the son, you can see this in your Bible, it says the son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Bible doesn't talk this way about prophets in the Old Testament. The point is that the son himself is the message. Of course, Jesus has a message for us, but more profoundly, he is the message. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus contradicts what God has been saying before. Rather, he fulfills it. He's the point of it. You could say that What God reveals about himself in Jesus is a more clear revelation of who he is than all the previous writings combined. Jesus doesn't contradict them, but he fulfills them the way a flower fulfills a bud. And through Jesus, and this is what I want us to see, by his most clear revelation being a person, through Jesus, God is not primarily giving us something new to do. He's doing something to us and for us. God is not just giving us another shot at keeping the law. God is saying, you need to be kept. And that will require something far greater than a new life philosophy. So what is it? that God does to us and for us in his son. As we 
turn to Hebrews, which answers this question in amazing ways. We don't have time to look at all of them. But as we, as we turn to how Hebrews answers this question, I want to flag the, the so what of the sermon up front. Just so you're not wondering, like, so what? So what that God reveals himself most fully in Jesus? Why does that matter? Why do we need to know that? Why can't we just enjoy some of Jesus' teachings and admire his parables, appreciate that he heals people? Why does it matter that we come to understand that the man is the point? Why does this matter? I'm going to give you two reasons. I want you to keep in mind these reasons as we go through this sermon. The first reason this is really going to matter is because recognizing that Jesus is the message not just that he brings a nice message. It guards us against seeing him as just another wise teacher or just another religious option among many. Many people really love Jesus' teachings, at least some of them. They they love his teachings about loving your neighbor. They love his teachings about loving your enemy. They, They love it where he says, don't be judgmental. They, they love his parables, like the one about the Good Samaritan. They love it when he stands up for justice and, and condemns unjust leaders. I love these things too. But if we separate what Jesus teaches from who he is and what he does, we completely miss Jesus. Because you will have many opportunities to find other teachers who tell you to love your neighbor. Just read Gandhi or Buddha. You will find other teachers that call you to love your enemy. You will find other human examples that lay down their life. And you do not need Jesus to be told that you should care for justice or advocate for the oppressed. So if all you like about Jesus is his teaching, you will soon see him fade into a cacophony of other really good teachers. But what you will never find is another being for whom it is said that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And as we'll see as we work through Hebrews, you will never find someone to replace what he does for you, does to you. So it guards against ever dethroning this man as merely a good teacher, merely a miracle worker. This is God in the flesh. So that's the first thing it does. This is the first so what. The second is this. Along with guarding us against dethroning Jesus, recognizing that Jesus himself is the message, that God, his clearest revelation to us is a person, I think it's really comforting Because if the essence of Christianity or the essence of your life philosophy is basically try a little harder, like Jesus walks out of the tomb with a new set of commandments and says, could you get it right this time? Don't forget what Moses said. Please try harder. If if that's all it is, then your religion will go as well as your willpower. And you will find yourself constantly trying to push the boulder up the mountain. But if instead the essence of Christianity is the fact that God has acted decisively to come to you, to do something to you and for you, you suddenly realize this this is about getting saved. It's about getting help, getting rescued. And you can apply that basic logic of Christianity to every single problem in your life. 
as I said to the children, if God did not spare his own son, will he not also give you all things? This is about far more than a new life philosophy. So let me just move us down. We've been in Hebrews kind of one and two, a little bit of three. Let me drop us into the the third verse of chapter one. We're not going to go any further than this. Just got one more verse to look at. It's just really dense. And um, I'm going to draw out three things from this passage that the son that Jesus does to us for us. First, we see in verse three that Jesus comes to us to take control, or you might say to reign, or to put down his scepter as a king over our lives. Let me show you where this is. Verse three, this is after Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended to heaven, and the writer says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high is an exuberant description of God in his heavenly court. Jesus is sitting down on a throne, but not for a rest. He's sitting down to reign. Now, no one else in heaven is sitting down. People in heaven, angels in heaven, they're either standing at attention or they're falling on their face, flabbergasted in praise. Only the Lord sits because his sitting is his enthronement. It is a picture at once of total repose and total authority. He's not nervous. He does not look like a college basketball coach scurrying up and down the sidelines. He is seated. He is not afraid. He is reigning. So we like reading about kings in our history books. We like movies, I do at least, about kings like King Alfred and old kings. And at the same time, I think we're a little uncomfortable with the idea of a king right now. I mean, a human being becomes king of your life, meaning they have all authority and they literally proclaim the law to you. Doesn't that make you a little bit squeamish? Isn't that too much power for one person? I think think this kicks against our modern notions of freedom and autonomy, things we've worked really hard for. Ellen DeGeneres, in a commencement speech, she sums up our modern view of freedom. She says, never follow anyone else's path. Don't take anyone's advice. My advice to you, college students, is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. That's Basically, I think how our modern culture understands the good life, free from constraints. So if the first thing the son says to us is, I'm your Lord, the first thing we hear is the scepter dropping down, how, how is that good news for freedom-loving individualistic people like you and me? Well, maybe we need to rethink our view of freedom. Of course, nobody wants bad rulers and bad rules. It's just bad news. But even if we had perfect fairness in the structures and leaders around us and total autonomy as individuals, would we really be free? Are we free to choose who we are? Did you choose when you'd be born? Did you choose your age? Did you choose your family of origin? Did you choose your IQ? your innate talents. We are not free to choose any of these things. 
And yet they exact tremendous constraints on who we are. Some thinkers speak of biological determinism, wondering how much our behavior is governed by our genes. Others wonder about social conditioning, how our external culture shapes how we think and we act. And it was the great German philosopher Martin Buber who so convincingly argued that there's no I without a thou. There's no me without a you to look at me, to talk with me, to help me see myself by you seeing me. All this is simply to say that we are not free to be ourselves by ourselves. A complex array of factors and relationships shapes who we are, how we think, and how we act. From the accent of your voice to the opinions of your heart, we are profoundly shaped by forces other than our so-called free will. The Bible's view of humanity has always taught that freedom is not found in autonomy, but freedom is found in proper lordship. Jesus and Paul are alike when they say that a human being is either ruled by sin or ruled by God. Paul says that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to God, that sin can reign over us. Paul says of people before they were Christians that they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So who of us can know how much we have been or are being influenced and guided by ideas of our culture? the impulses of our genes, or some deep psychic need to please our parents or rebel against them. Whether you're cohering to culture or rebelling against it, culture is still dictating what you're doing. We should not be fooled into thinking that we are utterly free, determining and deciding who we are and how we think from some sort of unbiased pure standpoint. The biblical view of freedom is not autonomy, but being ruled by the right Lord. This is why Jesus's act of enthronement is so crucial. Jesus doesn't come across a perfectly free person and enchain them. Jesus breaks people free who are blind to their own bondage. And then he stands above them as a benevolent Lord. Do you know the first thing Jesus does to enact his lordship? He describes it to his disciples shortly before his death. He says to them, I do not lord over you. I do not rule over you like the Gentiles do. Rather, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for you. So your Lord's first act for you is being crucified for you. So I would simply ask, when we look at the empty tomb and we think about the enthronement, who's running your life? Who's ruling your life? Do you know? Can you really disentangle all the sinews of your psychology and culture? Do you know you've chosen the right trajectory for yourself? Jesus will come. He will set you free, and he will be a good king and rule your life benevolently. Secondly, after seeing Jesus as a king, when we look at verse three, we see him not only reigning, we see him speaking. 
using words. And here he begins to look something like a prophet. However, he, he doesn't speak with the same type of words as a Moses or an Isaiah. His words seem to have some, some divine power. Verse 3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does that mean? He upholds the universe by the words of his power. It literally says he upholds all things. That's what they translate universe, all things. Words are powerful. Proverbs says that the the tongue has the power of life and death. And you know this. A word cruelly spoken over you when you're young or even when you're old, it can wreak havoc on your life. Words are powerful. And the trouble is, sometimes words can be lies but they still lodge themselves in us as though they're truths, and we can't shake them off. One study study shows that the the average modern person is bombarded by the equivalent of 174 newspapers of data a day. And by our own output, the study suggests, through email, Twitter, social networking, text messaging, the average person produces six newspapers worth of information a day. Now, the scariest part is this study was done 10 years ago. So what words are shaping you? What words have lodged in your mind and heart, dictating how you think about yourself and your world? Hebrews is saying that the son's word sustains the universe, And it's intentionally getting us to think back to Genesis 1, where the Father's words create the universe. So what the writer is saying is this. When God spoke to create the natural world and the natural laws, right? He he said, let there be light, and there was light. He, He created the functionality and the laws that keep our natural world in order. The writer's saying the Son is speaking to sustain these things. The two are in harmony. Now, We lack a category to understand how it is that Jesus is speaking right now to keep your eyeball working or the sinos in your brain functioning or to to ensure that the planet is the perfect distance from the sun or that the atmosphere is just right for our lungs. Now, we who live inside creation, we have laws and forces that we pick up on gravity, pounds, kilowatts, and we try to understand how these things operate to keep things together. But we don't know what power was at work in creation to bring something out of nothing. We have no clue how to describe such a power. But whatever it is, that's what ultimately holds all the other stuff together. Like the riverbanks around a river. Jesus Christ is holding all things together by the word of his power. Now, how might this apply itself practically, that Jesus is a a word speaker? He's enthroned as a king, and he's speaking words. What might that mean practically for you or for me day by day, that his words sustain? Let me just briefly suggest this. If God the Father speaks in Genesis 1 to create the natural world, As the Bible moves along, God speaks again and he creates the moral world. These are the laws of the Ten Commandments. These are the laws that keep together relationships and societies, just like the laws of nature remind you to water your plant, keep it in the sun. These both come from the same source. So when Jesus speaks words to us 
For example, when Jesus says the most important thing you could do in your life is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you begin to apply that word to your life, to live it, it will sustain you in very deep ways, the same way a farmer who remembers to water his plants is following a natural law that leads to their sustenance and their sustainment. So Jesus speaks the one true word that if you apply to your life and live by, brings you into alignment with the grain of the universe. So that's why you could say that his word sustains all things. It keeps you from going crooked, from wilting like a plant outside of the sun. So what does the sun do to us? And for us, he takes control of our lives and frees us and rules over us like a king. And then he begins to speak the words that sustain us. And there's one final thing I want to point out. Verse 3 says of the son, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Making purification for sins. That's not what a king did in the Old Testament. It's not what a prophet did. That's what a priest would do. This is priestcraft. The son cleanses and purifies us from the defilement of sin. Now, amazingly, in these, this early summary in Hebrews, the writer summarizes Jesus' entire earthly ministry with this single phrase, all he says is, after he made purification for sin, then he was enthroned. He doesn't say, okay, after he did the Sermon on the Mount, then after he healed some lepers, then after he encountered all the bad leaders like the Pharisees and told them off, after he did all that, then he sat on the throne. Why doesn't he mention these things? It's not that they're not important. It's because he, he knows what the crux of the matter is. You see, he knows other good teachers will come along. And he knows you can find other miracle workers to heal your bum leg in the ancient world. And he knows other people will come along to critique bad leadership. But there will be no one else. There will be no one else who makes purification for sins. And that is the crux of the issue. If Jesus doesn't do that for us, we are doomed. So, Jesus comes... And he stands between the holy God and us right in that most shameful part of our life. The, the part we don't tell anybody about or when we do we feel ashamed of. And he, he makes atonement. He dies for our sins. He bears the righteous wrath of a just God upon evil and sin so that he then can present us blameless and clean before the Father. He is, as Hebrews will go on to say, this is its main point, he is our great high priest. So, do you have a priest? I mean, not me, I can't do this for you. I'm here to tell you about the great high priest. Do you have someone to atone for your sins? Will you? Will you have your sins forgiven when you stand before God at the end of time? So out of the empty tomb comes not a dusted off, updated version of the Ten Commandments. 
like the NIV is a new version of the King James, just in modern English. A life philosophy doesn't come out of it. A genetic code on how to understand science better doesn't come out of it. A man comes out of it. Fully God, fully man. And he brings his scepter and he says, I'm your king. I will take care of you. And he begins to speak true words to you. And he says, these will be like the bread of heaven. Eat them. Eat these words. They are your sustenance. And he says, and I will die for you to make you clean. Christianity is not something we do. It's something that God does to us, for us, in his son. Andrew Claven went on pondering his son's words. Instead of trying to understand a philosophy, try to get to know a man. He wrote, to know someone, to really know him, is to see what he sees, at least a little. You can't do it just by understanding his philosophy. You have to get close to him, walk with him, do his bidding sometimes, even when it runs counter to your own profit and your own will. Do all that, and after a while, you can pick his voice out of a dozen voices. Imagine what he would think or say if he were with you. You carry him in yourself like a second conscience, a counterpoint to your own silent soliloquy. To know someone is to become him in a small way and to let him become part of you. You may like the teaching of Jesus. You may admire him as a great man. But the question the empty tomb puts before us all is do you know the person? Lord God, we acknowledge that your son is our king. He is the prophet and he is the priest. And there is no path to salvation other than him. And we're so thankful, Jesus, that you are a gracious king and you have laid your life down for us and that you are with us even to the end of the age. Amen.